This is a podcast brought to you by Bible Society. We're calling it She Too. There are some passages in the Bible which you won't hear read in church or preached from the pulpit. They are shocking and difficult, and it isn't easy to see what contemporary purpose they serve. Among them are the so-called texts of terror, stories which tell of the rape, abuse and humiliation of women. These texts are coming under renewed scrutiny in the light of the Me Too movement, although feminist scholars have been reading them for years. I'm Rosie Dawson, a religion journalist and theologian, and in this series I'm going to look at some of the key texts of terror and discuss them with women who study and teach about them. My contributors adopt a range of approaches, and not all come from a position of faith. Bible society isn't aligned to any single denomination, and doesn't necessarily endorse every position taken here. But this podcast is offered to help listeners engage with themes in parts of the Bible that are too important to ignore. Before looking at some of these stories in detail, I want to ask some general questions about how we might approach them, and I'm going to do that with the Reverend Dr Helen Painter, a Baptist minister and director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence at Bristol Baptist College. Helen, it was hearing one of your lectures that provided my motivation for this series. Tell me a little bit about your area of study. I'm really interested in texts of violence, in how we should read them today, in how they're used today, and how we as Christians um, can understand them and think hard about them. In the lecture of yours that I heard, you were talking about the story of the Levite's concubine, which we find in the book of Judges. Mm. It wasn't a story I was familiar with. And I felt this real anger inside me as you were speaking. I mean, it was actually a sort of physical reaction I had. And it wasn't just because it was a terrible story. It was because you were telling it to me. And I was wondering, why on earth are you doing that? These stories are in our sacred text. I think it's incumbent upon us to think hard about what they're doing in our Bibles. So that's one of the main reasons, I think. The, the other one, really, is that there are victims in these stories. And if we silence the stories, we silence the victims, we silence the ancient victims. And I think we shut down the modern victims, and there are far too many of those still today. One of the things that um, you're very clear about is, is the need for the reader to be upfront about their own assumptions and biases. So you've told me you're, you're a Christian, but what are your other assumptions and biases? What is the, your view of scripture that you bring to your reading of the text? Uh, it is a really good question. Um, I believe scripture is the word of God. I have what I would call a high view of scripture, which means I'm not willing to jettison bits that I'm not comfortable with. However, I hope I don't have a naive view of scripture. I think we need to read these as ancient documents, as um, as part of a whole and so on. I think we might talk a bit more about this in a minute. Um, but I want to come to these texts saying, why is this here? What is it trying to say to me? And my other major recommitment is to read in accordance with the rule of faith, read in accordance with um, what we as Christians have discerned through the ages about who God is, about what God is like. Um, the highest revelation of God is in Jesus Christ and the highest moment of that revelation is seeing Jesus Christ on the cross. So I begin with that understanding of who God is and then I'm very honest about the fact that I then read to see how I can work that understanding out with these ancient texts. Does that mean that sometimes you feel you have to defend the indefensible? I don't want to defend the indefensible. I really believe in following truth where it leads, so I'm willing to ask hard questions of the text. 
Um, what I'm not willing to do is say that they should be ditched altogether for my Bibles, and I'm not willing to say that God is not good in the end. One of the things that really struck me in the approach that you took is that there seemed to be real overlap between what you were doing with a story and what I might do as a journalist in approaching a story um, in terms of asking certain questions. I mean, what, what sort of questions are those? So the sort of questions I want to ask as I come to a text is, why is this here? Why have I been given this story? I want to ask how it fits into its immediate context and how it fits into the whole of scripture. But then I'm interested in particular things um, like this violence we're reading about. Who approves of it? Are we supposed to approve of it? Are we supposed to disapprove of it? I'm interested in how people are characterised within the story. And I'm particularly interested in things like whose voices are being heard, whose voices are not being heard. What things surprise me? Who's telling the story? Who's missing from the story? The sort of thing that, you know, journalists would say, well, we haven't got that point of view. We'd better go out and find that person. Absolutely, yes. So sometimes you have to use your imagination, I guess, because some of the people that you might want to hear from in a story are not there or are not being heard. Yes, I think the text invites us to use our imagination. I think part of the art of the storyteller is leaving us gaps that we are supposed to fill in. How important is it that as readers of these stories, we understand the historical context of the time in which the stories came together? Hmm. I think it's important, but it's, it's a really complex subject. These texts are written about a particular culture, and that culture is extremely alien to us. But they were written within a different culture, because um, I think it's really indisputable that these texts at least came into their final form a long while after the events they're talking about. Hundreds of years. Absolutely. So, yes, we do need to think hard about the historical context and particularly the ancient thought world and so on. But it is complex because we're talking about two different cultures and then we have a very different culture ourselves. And what about the importance of understanding what that second layer, the, the, the layer of the storytellers, what their intention was? The authorial intention is... Um, is theoretically problematic, um, and some of your listeners will will know that um, modern thought says that authorial intention is is utterly inaccessible. However, even if we set aside those theoretical difficulties, there are practical difficulties with working out what the author's intentions are for some of the reasons that I've um, begun to outline. But I think it's really important that we try. Um, we need to try and work out what author we're talking about for a start. Many of these texts um, have emerged over a long period of time. A lot of different voices have contributed to them before the fi they finally get um, sort of set in stone, as it were. Which means that you might get different views within the same story. Almost. Absolutely, yes. And I think we need to also try and work out what our author is doing with these stories. And I think that's one of the helpful ways of trying to access the intention of the author. Sometimes people say that a story that is not directly critiqued is therefore being endorsed. And I think we need to be careful not to be naive about that. Um, I'll give you an example from something uh, modern. Um, I went to a vigil a couple of years ago, which was held for people who'd lost their lives trying to cross the channel. And at this vigil, nobody stood up and said, this is a bad thing. They simply 
read the names and the ages as best they could deduce them and the mode of death as best they could deduce it. And this list went on and on and on. And there was no explicit critique, but there was a deeply articulate implicit critique. And I think that perhaps gives us a little idea of how sometimes I think these stories are being used and and trying to tease out what the author is doing with them helps us to um, find our way into that. I mean, it's actually how stories work, isn't it? I mean, how narrative works. You don't expect critique in in stories, do you? Explicit critique, because it's a story. Absolutely, and and in fact, stories that tell us, and here's the moral at the end, we dismiss as being rather naive and rather irritating, and we, we like stories to leave us thinking and pondering. But some scholars might say, I, I just want to engage with this text at completely face value. I just want to read this story and see the impact on me without engaging with any of that sort of historical stuff, any of that stuff about authorial intention. Do you think that's unwise? It's a valid approach from a scholarly point of view. It's not an approach that I'm happy to conduct myself exclusively. I'm, I'm interested in those questions. Um, but one of the questions that, for me, as a Christian scholar, I have to work out is where do I think the authority of this lies? Does it lie um, within my own reactions or does it lie within the text itself? And for me, as a confessional scholar, the authority lies within the text itself and I need to work very hard at understanding what that text is saying, what it is doing, how it is working in its ancient context. And then, yes, by all means, how does it sound to me? How might it sound to modern readers? And all of those important questions. But for me, the first question is, what's this text itself saying and doing? What do you say to people who might say, well, it it was such a different age then, and rape may not even been understood in the way that we understand it now, and so we don't have to perhaps take these stories as we might take a contemporary story of rape? I kind of want to say yes and no to that, I think. Um, Clearly this is a very different world, so we must be careful not to take a a quick judgment and a superficial judgment of what's going on. But these stories are telling us about real women and they evoke something powerful within modern women as well. So Yes, we need to read it in its ancient context, but we mustn't leave it there because I think that neuters the text. And I think this is a vibrant, dare I say, dangerous text that we need to allow to to continue to speak and resonate today. And do you ask, where is God in the story? Absolutely. And uh, I think that's such an important question to ask. And very often, I think it's very clear that he's on the side of the victim. Or not there at all, which might imply that he's on the side of the victim. Absolutely. I think sometimes the absence of God is itself a very articulate condemnation of what's going on. You speak about the necessity of an ethical reading of the text. What do you mean by that? I'm really bothered by the way that these texts have been used through history and still are used today to justify ongoing acts of violence, sometimes on on an enormous scale. So my idea of an ethical reading is asking the question of how do I read this in order to live God's way in this world. Do you think some of the the texts of terror are used to justify rape and terror? Certainly I've heard of stories of perpetrators of child abuse telling their victims that the Old Testament has many incidences of young women 
being married to older men and therefore this makes this all right. So that would be one really appalling example that I heard quite recently. We're going to be reading the stories. We can't unread them. What do we do with them? I think it's really important that we do not read them neutrally. These are supposed to shock us. They're supposed to disturb us. And I think it's important that we then try and think about points of connection with the modern world and then say, what what do I do with this? And what do you? It makes me angry with the situations that women have endured and continue to endure. And so that fuels me to want to make a difference. And do you think that there's something about this moment, this sort of Me Too moment, that provides an opportunity for us to sort of really engage and grapple with these tags? I, I think it absolutely does. I think for for generations and generations, um, violence against women has been hidden and concealed. And although Me Too hasn't suddenly done something, there, there has it feels like we're getting towards a tipping point and people are taking notice. And so, yes, I think this is an ideal time to bring these disturbing ancient texts into conversation with our modern situation. And, and maybe the hidden experiences and voices of, of women in those texts will get a hearing that they've not had before. Absolutely. And maybe they'll help to um, give a voice to women who have not yet found their voice and need to express the pain they're suffering. Helen, thank you so much. And we'll be catching up with you for some further reflection at the end of the series. <laughs>